Dear Sugar is supported by The universe has good news for the lost, lonely, and heartsick. Sugar is here, the both of us, speaking straight into your ears. I'm Cheryl Strayed. I'm Steve Almond. This is Dear Sugar Radio. Oh, dear son, won't you please share some little sweet days with me? So, Cheryl, we're going to talk about fathers because yes. it's Father's Day. This yes. is our Father's Day episode. And I have to admit up front that um, when we talked with my dad, I had a lot of feelings when you just said, wow, you have a dad. Mm-hmm. And not just a dad, but a really compassionate, present in my life, dispensing of wisdom and concern kind of dad. Yeah. And um, I think what I want to say is both I felt very acutely in that moment Cheryl does not have a father in her life, um, and in some ways a lot of healing to do from that relationship, and also, on the other side of it, incredible gratitude um, that I do have a dad who's still alive, and not just still alive, but vital, and still teaching me things, and still sometimes in ways that are even uncomfortable for me, trying to help steer me along the right path or help me find the right path. And so you're right, just for the chance for people to just stop for a second and express gratitude if that is what they should be expressing uh, for their fathers. Mm. So, Well, thank you. And I hope you know when I said that to you, it wasn't that I, you know, sort of like, why do you get this? And I don't. But I think that I know I was speaking for a lot of our listeners. When you don't have something, you notice the people who do. Yeah. And I think something especially as powerful as a father or a mother, it is a sort of thing that can be really invisible. If you have your parents, you've taken them for granted, as as you should. These people are essential to you. They were there from the beginning. Right. And um, you don't necessarily have a consciousness that not everyone around you has that. I've always, I've always struggled with Father's Day. It's always been a painful holiday for me, really, since as far back as I can remember. I was aware that I didn't have a father. Mm. But so there always was this sense of, okay, it's Father's Day. Should I send my father a card, even though I have really no contact with him? Every once in a while, when I did have contact, it was ugly. Um, should I go buy him a card? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, then there were later in life, it was like, of course I shouldn't. <laughs> I'm not going to acknowledge this this holiday for this man who hasn't been a father to me. And yet it was all the people around you are, are celebrating and honoring um, this figure who who has abandoned you. Yeah. You know, and I know, gosh, we have so many people listening right now who are in that position. Yeah. And, you know, now in my adult life, Father's Day is not a grief for me. It, first of all, I was in, indifferent to it. And then once I had kids, now it's really about celebrating my husband. One of the great miracles of my life is getting to see Brian, my husband, be such a wonderful father to our children. So I feel nothing but celebration on this day and gratitude that that I get to have a little bit of that given back to me and seeing the ways that my kids take 
their father for granted. Yeah, well, so so this show is for is for the dads, ours and everyone's. Um, and I want to read this letter before I start weeping. All right, uh, it's a really fascinating letter. I, I, ever since we got it, I've been turning it over in my mind. It's so it's so fascinating to me. It's um, well, here it is, dear sugars. I write to you today as the new father of a beautiful baby girl and the husband of a lovely, supportive wife. I recently finished my PhD in the humanities and am in the midst of trying to land a job, which I hope can allow me to both grow as the scholar that I've trained to be and as a co-provider for my family along with my wife, who has a great job she enjoys and that pays well. All that to say, my life is full of the new joys of parenthood, a sense of completion, and the excitement of new horizons Or at least this is what I imagine I should be experiencing right now. Instead, I'm experiencing a severe blue period flare-up, one of the most severe that I've faced in years. It's been hurting so bad that my body actually aches, and lately it's literally making me sick. I've suffered from a mild case of bipolar disorder for years, which means I can more or less function even during low periods. But I'm hating myself for hating myself, if that makes sense, because of all the good in my life, especially our new baby. Why can't I be fully present when I'm with her? Why hasn't what I thought would be the utter joy of having her in my life ended the selfishness that is my self-loathing? Sugars, let me be totally clear here. I'm in the care of mental health professionals who have taken good care of me for years, and I have a solid support network outside of my immediate family. I'm in touch with all of them about this latest episode, so I'm not in danger. I don't demonstrate any self-hating behaviors in front of my daughter, though I'm worried I might do so unconsciously. I care for her, feed her, put her down for naps and bed, all with smiles and giggles and snuggles, even when my own pain sometimes makes me not fully present. But the questions remain. Why haven't I gotten over this narcissistic self-loathing when I have a new life that is now dependent upon me for care and love and for her own sense of self? And perhaps most importantly, how can I make sure that I don't pass down any self-hating behaviors or attitudes to her? With great respect, father of a newborn with the same old blues. The same old blues. I think one of the biggest shocks of my life is that whenever anything really good has happened to me, there's this feeling like, oh, now I'm going to be different. And my life is the same. My life is the same. Guess what? Knock, knock. It's still me in here. Right. It's your inner life is the same. And this is a man who has just had two great things happen to him. One, he's become a father. Two, he's finally finished his PhD. And so, you know, he's, I'm sure, idealized what's on the other side of that. Just like he's idealized, you know, not even needing to idealize. He's got this beautiful baby. Why isn't he happy? Right. So. I think you're absolutely right that what happens in an odd way is that we become conscious of the story we're telling about our lives. And there is this sense of, this should just be the happiest I've ever been. I should be elated. And anything that violates that story that we've told about ourselves is not just um, something unfortunate. It's character flaw. Yeah. It's some failing that I am failing to be happier than I should be. I've gotten everything that I wanted. Why is not my inner life shifted? And in fact, why is it shifted in this dramatic direction towards self-hatred and loathing and it's even affecting him physically well the first thing we would both say is you have a biological illness and it doesn't leave you when you have a baby or get your phd or have a wife you love i think one of the most painful parts of the letter 
is he expresses this um, feeling of, you know, there he is smiling at his daughter and cooing at her. And, and he's aware that, th- that he's acting in ways that aren't reflective of how he's feeling inside. He's faking it. That's right. But I want to console him and, and not to diminish. Obviously, he's struggling with bipolar disorder. I'm so glad, father of a newborn, you're, you're getting the right help you need for that. But I also want to say part of being a parent, in my experience, is doing just that thing he describes. Yeah. Sometimes it's ecstatic and joyous and you're like, oh my <laughs> and gosh. More often. And more and, and sometimes it's just like, ugh, and your mind is elsewhere and you're frustrated or bored. And, you know, and I think that it's okay. It's okay to have a sort of negative feeling inside, even when you're, for the sake of your kids, pretending to feel happy and, and playing whatever games you're playing. And and the truth is, not only is it okay, it's inevitable. That's right. I mean, and, and also, you know, father with a newborn, you are who you are. In the great words of Popeye the Sailor Man, <laughs> one of my favorite quotes of Popeye the Sailor Man. He is so erudite. Do you it's know intimidating. this quote? I believe I, it is, I am what I am. I'm not. And I, I believe it is from the Bible. I am what I am. It's from the Bible? Yeah. <laughs> are you What do you joking? think Popeye is about, man? <laughs> I All got right. it from Popeye. Okay. There is a wonderful, simple truth about that. This is a man who struggles with bipolar disorder, which sometimes means that he's feels sad even when he doesn't have a reason to. Correct. And this is who he is. And this is who he is as a father. It's who he is as a scholar. It's who he is as a husband. The, the work that needs to be done is not how to fake it better. It's how to accept himself for who he is Thank better. you. And part, part, I'm so glad you said that because the other thing I was going to say is that we, we hear this in letters frequently, that mothers and fathers, and I'm glad it's a father writing in, but the same mentality or the same pressures that moms put on themselves, he's putting on himself. And one of the ones is he needs to recognize just because you have a beautiful baby and you have the ideal in your head, that's not going to undo who you were before you were a parent. And actually, guess what? It exacerbates or exaggerates who you are. You know, my impatience, my anxiety has not diminished because I have kids. It's harder. It's deeper, but it's harder. I mean, I wrote in one of my books, I have a silly essay called, you know, 12 Ways I Killed My Infant Daughter in Her First 48 Hours of Life. And it was just, it just documents how utterly uh, wrecked by anxiety and, mm-hmm. and, and worry uh, you are about your kids and the damage, a little baby, what you could do, all your negligence and so forth. And it's some version of this that he's expressing and this idea of, I cannot let, and we've heard it so often, Cheryl, I cannot let my personal struggle, my pain, my anxiety, my resentment, I can't let any of that negative stuff right. infect my child or they will become as unhappy as I am at this moment or I will doom them. And, you know, as a culture, we have got to adopt the idea of good enough. Yeah. The good enough mother, which Donald Winnicott, this you know psychoanalyst, talks about, who studied so many mothers and, and children, and also the good enough father. And one of the principles of that is you are not an illusion. You are not some miraculous being who is somehow endowed with a new patience and fortitude and strength. You are who you were before you had the child, and now you're a more stressed out version. And you're not going to do it right even half the time. And the question isn't what you did wrong, but how well you manage your disappointment in yourself and also making sure that you are loving and caring for your daughter. And I have no doubt that this guy is doing that. To wrap up, I think what we're saying to you, father of a newborn, is that you're okay, that you're, you're doing the right things, you're aware 
of managing this disorder that you want to lessen the impact on your daughter, it is going to have an impact. I mean, we have the parents we have. If you have a father who's impatient or a mother who worries a lot, that's the kind of father you have and that's the kind of mother. If you have a father who has bipolar disorder, you know, that's the father you have. And that doesn't have to be a negative thing. The fact that you're looking at your daughter and laughing with her, that is what she needs right now. That's what's teaching her who you are. It's not about whether you're feeling conflicted inside. She sees your smiling face, and this is what she will carry into her life forever. And as she gets older, father of a newborn, she if you treat what is sorrow and pain as quote-unquote narcissistic self-loathing, then that's what she'll learn that when she's feeling pain inside, when she's feeling blue for whatever reason, she should label it and beat herself up for it. Yeah. Don't teach her that lesson. Don't. You're in you're in pain right now. You expected to feel elated and instead you're in a a, a tailspin. You're in a in a depression and and she needs to see you managing that as best you can, not beating yourself up for it because that she will pick up on and that's how she'll treat her own unhappiness and that's very unfair to her, just as it's unfair to you. Yeah. How much time do we have left for dreaming? Oh my life, I've been searching for meaning. Oh my life, I've never seen Dear Sugars, I'm a 23-year-old woman who was raised by my single mother. I didn't meet my father until I was 21. My father moved to the opposite side of the country the day after I was conceived. I grew up knowing that my father had wanted so little to do with me that my mom had to bring him to court and have a paternity test performed when I was two years old in order for him to pay my child support. Throughout my childhood, I sent him letters with my school pictures touting my accomplishments straight A's, soccer star, a good Greek girl. He is full Greek, an identity which my mother successfully encouraged me to identify. He never responded. By high school, I decided to stop sending these letters. When I was 18, he finally responded to an email I sent him, and we corresponded that way for a few years. In these emails, and later in phone calls, he was very superficial. I'd share my personal challenges in hopes that he would do the same. I'd mention aspects of my personality that I knew I got from his half of me, hoping it would stir some emotion in him. It didn't. Someone listening into our conversations would have concluded he was my mentor, not my father. When I was 21, he flew to my home state to see me. When we made eye contact the first time, I felt an electric surge run through my body. He had the same eyes as me. That weekend, I finally asked all my burning questions and told him, unsolicited, what it was like for me to grow up without a father. Driving home afterwards, I sobbed and finally acknowledged the hope I'd nurtured all my life, that as soon as my father met me, he'd fall in love with me. He'd swoop in and save me from my chaotic life and offer me the comfort and ease of a home not burdened by poverty and mental illness. Before he and I said goodbye that weekend two years ago, I asked him if I would see him again. He replied that since I would be moving to his side of the country in a few months for graduate school, he'd come to see me once I'd settled in. Well, I'm now two months away from graduating, and I'm likely moving away. 
He and I speak every month or so, but he's never mentioned coming to see me again. I've tried to be direct with him about my wishes, but I fear I'm like a needy girlfriend who comes on too strong. Sugar, what do I do? I was disappointed after my father and I started communicating that our connection wasn't instant or natural. He's a little boring, and he often misses my sarcasm. But I can't ignore the many similarities I have with him that I've never been able to share with my mother or siblings. My question for you is this. At what point do I stop trying or hoping for a closer relationship with my father? Our conversations do little to bring us closer. What does he want or get out of this relationship? Is it only to absolve himself of guilt and shame, of which he has never admitted to even feeling? Yours, Daddy Issues. She got the name right. I mean, this young woman has had, right out of the gate, a lot of misfortune, and it takes a while for the letter to reveal the extent of it. Um, you know, But the central thing that's on her mind and heart is her dad was not present in her life, and she has really and understandably personalized that. You know, his narrative was whatever it is, but what we're hearing is, and very honestly, her version of it, and that is he chose not to be in my life. He had a chance to be meaningful. He was there in court. The moment I was conceived, he left. He played no part in my life. But what's so interesting about the letter, Cheryl, is that we're hearing about that utter absence and disinterest uh, and a kind of hollowness in their in their actual interactions. It's very, they're very disappointing. But then there's this counter narrative, which is what she wished and the fantasy she constructed of what their relationship was supposed to be. And when I reached the paragraph when she talked about, I you know dreamed that he would fall in love with me and that he would sweep me away from the unhappiness. And you know, she talks about poverty and mental illness. Uh, into a place of ease and comfort, I thought, well, God, you know, he's not just dad. He's also Prince Charming. And she has, constru- understandably, she has constructed that fantasy, but nobody can live up to that. And he is not exactly, um, you know, his his actions don't recommend him well as a hero. Let's put it that way. Right. And I think some people do live up to that. There are some fabulous fathers and heroic dads and, you know, who are everything we would hope they would be. But daddy issues didn't get one of them. No. Nope. And that has been abundantly clear from the beginning. Yeah. And I think that you're so on the mark here when you say, you know, the, the sadly, the problem is that she, she does need to let go of this incredibly reasonable wish, which is that she would have this, this father who, it turns out, did love her all this time and did want to be a part of her life and did want to know her. Yeah. And she now has proof that he isn't that guy. Yeah. So then what do we do? I mean, I, I, I think the problem, when we talk about how to figure out this problem, it sadly can't be how to make the father change his ways. Mm-mm. It never works. We can never force somebody to be who they are not. Or, you know, one of the things I wrote in, in my sugar column, Tiny Beautiful Things, is you cannot convince people to love you. That is an absolute rule. Yeah. It's the harshest truth of my life. It's also a guiding light. Because once you realize that, once you accept that love isn't something you convince people to do, it's actually on the other side of that truth is liberation. Yeah. And then you go around finding people who you don't have to convince to love you. Mm-hmm. And so what I wonder about here is, you know, to me, you know, the, really the, the only question, I mean, obviously, daddy issues, this is going to be a long journey for you, honey bun. Yeah. You are young. You're, you're doing great. You're doing great. 
I mean, you're reaching out to your dad, you're trying to make this work, you're in touch with what you hoped it would be, and you're feeling the sorrow that you feel when you find out it isn't. But, you know, what the next thing is, is what do you do with the facts? What do you do when you know that this is how it is? And so I always think it's like, you know, you really need to pull the narrative back into your own life. This is your choice. It's not your dad's choice anymore. When you were two, it was your dad's choice to say, I don't even know if she's my daughter, right? right? But it's your choice to get to be the kind of daughter you want to be. Do you want to have a relationship with the man who you've come to know as your father? Do you want to have a relationship with him? Is that relationship, you know, worth the the sorrow it puts you through? Um, and what do you get from it? Mm-hmm. You know, what's interesting to me, what's the most hopeful part of this letter, is it isn't true that her father in her adult life has said, I don't want to have a relationship with you. There's this very interesting line. Someone listening into our conversations would have concluded he was my mentor, not my father. Well, Obviously, she doesn't just want a father. She wants a supercharged rescue me from my right. unhappiness father. But mentors, not bad. I, I don't mean to be no. glib, but he is offering something. And if someone was listening in, they would say, well, that's not what we would expect of a father. We'd expect deeper intimacy, deeper connection, deeper support. But he's offering guidance. He's a mentor. He's there. That's something. That's not nothing. Yeah. And I guess I want to say say it like this. It's a hard thing to try to do, especially with a dad who has clearly failed or or not lived up to basic emotional financial responsibilities to his daughter and caused her great pain and anguish. But it might be instructive to think about his life and his version of it. Mm -hmm. I, I think it might make it easier to step a little bit outside of the fantasy of what he should have been and think about who he was as a young man when he decided to take off. Mm -hmm. And from his worldview, what pressures he was under, what he couldn't face and why he couldn't face it, why he made the decisions he did, that's not actually an easy thing to do, especially when you have every right to say, I was two years old. Didn't you love me? Didn't you want to care for me? And then what that forces you to do is confront, no, he was the kind of person who didn't. Yeah. And now as an adult, what he's able to summon is, you know, a very partial kind of love. I don't even know if we'd call it love, right? Yeah, we could say maybe it's support. And actually, the trajectory is good in a sense. He's gone from being nothing to being a mentor. And so maybe there's a cause for hope. Maybe that's a little ember that, you know, but you can't, you can't blow on it with the full force of every expectation of your soul that he's going to become somebody who loves you and rescues you from the sorrow of your childhood, even though he's partly responsible for that. Right. You know, my question for you, Cheryl, and it might be too personal and maybe you don't want to take it up, but you faced a similar kind of choice and made a different decision to not have a relationship with your dad. Would you talk a little bit about how you worked through that decision? Because it's clear, or at least it seems clear from the outside, that you said, I'm not doing myself any favors by trying to have a relationship with this person. It's damaging right. to me. But that's a place that you get to. Well, and it's a, and I had a very different dynamic with my father. Uh, my father, you know, really is abusive. And he's somebody who, you know, will often try to harm the people he's close to. And, but you know, what I did throughout my life, both throughout my adolescence and my adult life, I would every few years have some kind of communication or contact with my father. And every time I was 
trying to see if he could be the father I hoped he'd be. And so I really deeply relate to your daddy issues when you say that you, you know, that you had this fantasy that your father would meet you and fall in love with you. I have had this fantasy my whole life. Um, It is not a dream that dies easily. Right. I mean, it's really a hard thing. It's It's a lifelong, sad, hard thing. And it's a real loss that you suffered. And so I really have so much, you know, I empathize with you deeply about that. And what I did is I found that every few years when I would talk to my dad or have some sort of exchange of emails or letters is that I always found that my dad was the same person. Mm-hmm. And I each time then made the decision to protect my own life and my own heart. Yeah. And I said, you know, I can't have a relationship with you. And this went on and on and on until I was 39. And at that point, you know, I had grown up enough and I had become a mother and I had really built my own life and evolved psychologically and and healed so many of those father wounds that I have that my father and I had an exchange that I that I actually wrote about um, in one of the Dear Sugar letters um, where he, you know, essentially, you know, I I asked him to account for our life. I asked him to, to account for himself. I said, you know, I, I would like to have a relationship with you, but I need you to explain to me why you made the choices you made. And, and, and I don't mean that in a judgmental way. I mean, just explain, like, what were you thinking when right. you did this? Right. And he responded by saying, don't ever contact me again. I'm so glad to finally be rid of you. Wow. And he said many other things too, much more hurtful things. And that something inside of me then, that was the end for me. Yep. When my father said, I'm so glad to finally be rid of you, what I realized is it was the end. Yeah. And so I walked across that line where I did actually um, say, I don't have a relationship with my father and I never will again. Yeah. You know, what we can imagine your father was feeling was tremendous shame. And that's the moment where you realize, okay, the force of his shame is greater than his ability to love and, 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 and seek absolution. You know, that's it. You saw it very clearly. He's too ashamed to get into this discussion. Right. And And, rage. There was rage and shame, which are, you know, the same thing, Well, yeah, I think the rage arises directly from the shame. The rage is a cover story for the shame. And I think that daddy issues, you're flirting with some of the same dynamics here. You're still hoping that he can be lured out of his hidey hole, but you're also afraid that you're going to scare him into hiding. And the truth is you probably will with a certain emotional intensity that just isn't in his human repertoire. And also you're basically saying, as Cheryl said, I think wisely and bravely, I want you to face this. I want us to face it together and have a conversation about what happened. I'm not okay with just pretending that this betrayal didn't take place. Right. And that's your due. That's your right. And the reality is that he's probably not ready to, to do the things that you desperately and honestly want him to be able to do, whether that's answer for his previous actions or connect to you as an adult and provide you love and support and meet other relatives. And you have to try to make your peace with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's easier said than done, right? Cheryl's one of the braver people that we all know and from her work and everything else. And there you are at 39, mm-hmm. uh, only at that point being able to say, I need you to really answer for these. And, and if, if you don't, then that's it. I'm no longer going to be chasing after that phantom of a dad that might somehow return the intensity of feeling and connection that we all yearn for. 
Right. It's our job as children to yearn for that, especially after our fathers, who are by nature often more remote from us. Yeah. Right? You know, there are so many people out there who have the father in their life, and they wish he were a different guy. Yep. And so, you know, I do think, I keep returning to this, the decision you need to make is, are you willing to accept that that guy is your father? And and then what do you do with that? Do you see him once a year and call it good? Do you talk to him every couple months like you've been doing and, right. you know, accept that with some grace? Or or do you just say, no, it's it's unbearable for me to be constantly disappointed? disappointed. Yeah. You know, all of those are valid choices. Right. You know, we have this wonderful guest yeah. I think he might be able to offer Daddy Issues uh, some insight. Ten Ways to Sunday. And I have to say that part of the reason I became a writer, we read these great books and we go, oh, my God, I just want to do that. Right? Writers, right. jealous readers. The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven was a revelation to me. Sherman Alexie's, I, I think it was his maybe first or second story yeah, collection, amazing. but it was just like, holy cow, this is storytelling. This is literature. So beautiful, smart, plain spoken, whatever. I, I, it's part of the reason I became a writer. And I'm absolutely fascinated to hear what his big, capacious mind makes of this because he's both a dad and he's written in very... Uh, painful, straightforward ways about the experience of fatherhood himself and also having a father who is present but troubled. Uh, I, I should mention that his new story collection, which includes some of those beautiful stories from The Lone Ranger and Tonto Fistfight in Heaven, is called Blasphemy, New and Selected Stories, which is awesome. So let's give him a call. Hello? Sherman Alexi. Yes. This is Cheryl Strayed. Hey, Cheryl. How are you? Steve Allman and I are so pleased that you're going to talk to us today. Ah, uh, it'll be great. How you doing, Sherman? Hey, Steve. We just got done, Sherman, um, talking about this very uh, bruising letter from a, a woman who identifies herself as Daddy Issues, and we, we thought to ask what you make of it, especially because there's a considerable overlap, I think, in your biographies and because you've written so beautifully about of fatherhood and, and its attendant discontents? Well, the first thing I, I thought about in the search for a connection to your past, your missing past, I thought about, as you may or may not know, uh, for, for generations, Native American children were taken from their families under very, very dubious legal reasons and adopted out yeah. to non-Indian families, and we call them lost birds. And uh, I, I know lots of them, and in particular, my first cousin was adopted out. This white family actually came to the reservation to adopt my mother's child, but that baby died, was stillborn. So my aunt gave birth a few days later, and they took that baby, which was my cousin. So she lived apart from us, and we had no contact with her for, uh, gosh, I mean, I guess until I was about 11 when I even learned she existed. Was she older and than you or younger than you? Older than I was. Uh -huh. And then she started visiting, coming to the reservation for powwows and such, looking to reconnect with the family, with the tribe, with the tribal culture. And she was from the city, which, you know, as I know her as an adult now, of course, I mean, she was from Vancouver, Washington, which <laughs> is hardly you know, a city in the way <laughs> we were imagining her to be from, you know, Oz or something, right. because she dressed city, she talked city, she was incredibly beautiful, and she just was this sort of mythical creature to me, and I didn't really pick up on her 
really monumental sadness. Mm. And so over the years, she has tried to reconnect with the tribe. Uh, she's lived on the reservation. She's worked on the reservation. And it always ends up in some major disappointment. Yeah. And this is often the story with lost birds, that they go looking for some connection and can't find it. And there's an end result they're looking for that they never achieved. And in reading this letter, I was thinking about that. And, and I mean, I myself don't know of a lost bird story that really ends beautifully. Yeah. Really? You know, one thing, Sherman, you bring up this interesting point about expectation and idealization. Um, when you are not with someone like your father, you get to sort of decide who he's going to be and what sorts of connections or conversations you're going to have. And this letter writer is like, he failed her the first time by essentially abandoning her. He failed her the second time by not being who she dreamed he would be. And it's it's bigger than that because she, is Sherman, suggesting somewhat like the Lost Birds has constructed this entire rescue fantasy that is it's it's completely understandable, but it's entirely of her own making. It's an act of imagination. And the dad is just sitting there being a human. Yeah. Just, just, I mean, just an everyday, ordinary jerk. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> well, that's the other thing is, you know, so many people obviously have parents, you know, this dad could have been there all of her life and been a disappointment in the same way. I mean, he could have been sitting in the recliner right there in the room for 20 years and right. been the same guy. Being boring and not getting her sarcasm. <laughs> and a lot of people listening, you know, to us right now actually have that experience, that father. What about your own father, Sherman? Tell us about your relationship with your dad. Oh, well, you know, he's he's been gone now for 12 years, which is just amazing to think about. Uh, but... Uh, it, it was an intense relationship. He was a lifelong alcoholic. He died of alcoholism, kidney failure. And he was an extraordinarily talented young man uh, who was always burdened by the fact that his father died in World War II and his mother died six months later. So my father was essentially a war orphan. Yeah. He had a similar high school experience to mine where he was the only Indian in the school and ended up starring in all sorts of ways. Hmm. Hmm. But unlike me, who had him, he had nobody. Yeah. And uh, in the aftermath of high school graduation, just fell apart. Hmm. What was his relationship um, with your family specifically? Because I know she, he was he was not present. Well, no, much he of was. The time. He was always there. He was a binge alcoholic. The thing he would do is he would start drinking and then leave the house and be gone for, you know, anywhere from one day to two months. And be gone. I mean, how did you come to terms with having a father like that, who was somebody who was there and not there? Oh, I mean, you'd go to him. <laughs> I mean, he, he mostly stayed in his bedroom when he was home, watching TV or doing crossword puzzles. Mm. So, of course, I remain a massive TV and crossword puzzle fan. So, uh, in fact, doing a crossword puzzle while watching TV is one of my... Uh, probably most common pastimes. Uh, you know, I own every crossword app there is on my iPad. Uh, wow. So there's a, you know, there's a desperate quality to it. So in trying to connect with him, uh, I, I did the things he did. You know, he was a hoarder of weird things, not messy things, but he's a, you know, he called himself a collector, but it would be weird shit. Like, uh, 
He kept every People magazine every, ever published. So I modeled myself after him. But on, one, on the other hand, though, he, for instance, never missed an organized basketball game I ever played in. Right. You know, one of the things that I'm struck by listening to you talk about your father, it really it, I'm, it just makes me smile because I do think that, you know, you you took what many people would characterize as a really difficult childhood with a father who really wasn't what we, you know, hope a father will be exactly. And you decided to turn it into something positive in your life. You're resilient about the fact that, you know, you have these crossword apps on your phone. To me, that's not necessarily a negative thing. It's a way of like keeping the father love that you did have alive in your life in a way that's not destructive, but is really kind of sweet. Well, making the best out of what little he could give me. Right. Which is, you know, your movie, the movie you wrote, what's the name of it again? Smoke Signals, yeah. Smoke Signals, right. Yeah. I want you to know that every Father's Day, you know, and I have not not a great father story at all, but every Father's Day, I go um, onto YouTube and and I watch that wonderful piece of the film that I believe is a poem by Dick Lurie, my poetry editor. Yeah. And you know what I'm talking about, right? That, that yeah. poem. And it's How do we forgive our fathers? How do we forgive our fathers? Oh, <laughs> my husband and I both just watch it and weep. How do we forgive our fathers for leaving or for staying, for shouting, for never talking at all? <laughs> and then the last line is, you know, if we forgive our fathers, then what is left? But it sounds like Sherman, you uh, did forgive your father. I'm I'm curious, you know, as you were, um, you know, becoming a star in high school, and then obviously going on to just do brilliant, important, creative work. How did you interact with your dad? Was he aware? Was he proud? Was he supportive? Were you conflicted? What were you feeling as you were transcending what he was able to do? Well. I remember the first time in college from a writing class, I was home for a break, and I showed him a few of the poems, hmm. my early poems. And he read them, and he goes, yeah, these are interesting to me, but why would anybody else be interested in us? <laughs> but I will tell you this, for being so nakedly autobiographical in my work and often dealing with very painful subjects about him and my mother and my siblings, you know, when I give readings in Spokane, they're all there in the third row. Wow. Yeah. So he was proud, I think baffled by it. But if you've seen me perform, you know I can be pretty funny and pretty crass. Yeah, and yeah. I've seen you perform. I've noticed that. Those are two verbs <laughs> that sound accurate. <laughs> and, and, and I'd look out there, and he was, he, he, was, he was an amusing guy, but he certainly was not crass at all. But I would look out there, and there he'd be, you know, dying laughing. And I don't think... Any audience member has ever made me happier to see laughing mm. than to look out there and see my dad, mm. uh, especially near the end when he was so sick that he could, you know, barely react to anything at all. Uh, and he couldn't really laugh big, but I'd, be, I'd see his shoulders moving. Mm. That's so good. I think that question that we just posed is, how do we forgive our fathers? That's, that's a question where I think we're all asking of all the people in our life, like how do we forgive the people we love for being who they are and for, you know, failing us sometimes because they are who they are, whether that be a raging alcoholic or in this case of this letter writer, um, daddy issues, 
has this dad who is not who she wanted him to be. And he, he never and, was. And he also wasn't in her life. And here's the deal. He probably never will be. He probably no. never will be. But I'll tell you, Cheryl, what's so profound about that Dick Laurie poem is that last line suggests that in a certain way, and I mean, I'm interested to hear your guys' take on it, um, that, that our preoccupation with the, who our fathers were, the sins of our fathers, the grievances we hold against them are in a way what keep us, what keep them alive in our life, would allow us to hold on to them. Because after all, if we forgive our fathers, what is left? So in a certain way, she's keeping her father alive. It's a fantasy. It's doomed to disappoint her and all the rest of it. And we can sort of point at that and say, well, she should try to get over it. She's damaging herself. She's hurting herself. But it's also keeping in her own way, in her own formulation. I think part of what's heartbreaking about that poem is, well, that's what we are all doing. We keep alive the people who are disappointed in by re-experiencing our disappointment in them, which contains within it the fantasy that they'll somehow someday be different, better. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, more connected to us. Yeah. So, Sherman, how has it played out for you as a dad? Do you feel um, echoes of your experience and your relationship with your dad in, in dealing with your kids, or do they, you know, point that out to you as kids sometimes will? Well, well, I am currently talking to you from my basement uh, office slash man cave slash. <laughs> bedroom slash place I flee the rest of the world. <laughs> so I have <laughs> I have replicated plenty of my father's behavior with my own son. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, consciously, unconsciously, subconsciously, I don't know, but uh, I- I'm sober. <laughs> yeah. And did that sobriety rise out of essentially your father's life? Uh, well, my, my drunkenness... Uh, <laughs> was part of that, and then my sobriety was part of that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I wonder, Sharon, I, and this is just speculative, it might be total nonsense, but the nature of your career is that you are away from home a lot. Is there something that sort of replicates a dad who's at home but then is gone for long stretches? You're oh, cer- the binge leaving? Oh, the hell yeah. Leaving. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That's what I was getting at. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the absence, of course. The, 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 the pursuit of loneliness. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's astonishing how, how often I find myself in, you know, in positions where, wait, I'm lonely. How did I do this again? Yeah. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got my crosswords. You've yeah. got your crosswords. Yeah, exactly. Apps. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Sherman, any last words of wisdom or advice specifically for this young woman at this moment in her life where she's trying to figure out what to do with this dad who's not living up to her expectations and hopes. Stop watching Hollywood movies. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the way in which romantic comedies are a big factor in our divorce rates, <laughs> yeah. I, I think uh, family Christmas movies are also the same kind of big factor. Mm. Yeah. Where everything gets resolved in 90 minutes and there's no agony left. Uh, you know, I, I think about the nice thing they did with your movie, Cheryl, based on your book, which they could have really made it a Hollywood ending, and they didn't. They left. They left the sense of well, this part is accomplished, and now the next part begins. Mm-hmm. But I feel stronger. Yeah, it's it's always so nice to talk. I could we could just talk to you all day long. We'd be happy. But, <laughs> um, it's always nice to to connect with you. Well, thank you. Yes, you too. Thanks so much, Sherman. Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Cheryl. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you.
The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me on point for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future, five special episodes. Listen and follow On Point wherever you get your podcasts. I thought it was so interesting that Sherman gave us a cultural story. Yes. Of loss. That's right. These lost birds. And I have to say my mind my mind didn't go in that direction. But the minute he started talking about it, it really did um, offer, I think, maybe some powerful consolation or at least explanation yeah. to daddy issues Yeah. about, you know, what happens when we lose that essential thing, like a father, and how often, no matter how far we journey to get that thing that we lost back, we're going to be disappointed unless we rewrite the script. Right. You're right. It has to be rewritten because what he was doing is saying, look, it was almost ethnographic. Many children, uh, we must have a dozen more letters that have to do with father loss in this way, and they're all in different ways. Maybe it's divorce, maybe it's somebody who was cold and cut off, but it amounts to the same thing, father loss. And these lost birds all have one thing in com- two things in common. They lost their families, and when they wanted to rejoin them, they had developed an idealized notion of what it was going to be like, and that in turn out to be a setup for disappointment. And that's illuminating because daddy issues you can now hear. This is your story and has particular dimensions and disappointments and geographic locations and family culture, but it's actually a lot of people's story. And they go through the same arc of they lose, then they idealize that loss. It becomes the object of affection and obsession, and that becomes a setup for utter disappointment. And that's the sense in which the script needs to be rewritten so that we can have, and this is true of fathers internally, if we think about the first letter we talked about, they have to have a realistic version of what fathers can do at their best, which isn't perfect, and what fathers do do, which is sometimes abandon their kids or neglect them or harm them in ways that are unforgivable. And the impossible task is to somehow forgive them and allow ourselves to give up on the idea that we can hang on to some idealized or villainous version of them. They're people who failed us and, you know, in their own odd way, they were helpless to do otherwise. Yeah. I hope that Daddy Issues listened to this whole episode because really we talked about so many different kinds of fathers in the course of our conversation. Mm -hmm. And we have the pretty dang good father. We have the pretty dang bad father. That's that's you, Rick Almond. All right. That's (laughs) That's you, you, Cheryl's dad. We have Sherman's father who who was was a mix of things and yet always there for Sherman in the end, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And we have the the first letter that the father of a newborn telling us about his fatherhood and what he's trying to do and doing. And I think that what we see is like, there, there is no one father, even though we all know exactly, you know, we all know the narrative of what the good father is. Right. And that's the father we all want, but it isn't the father we all get. No. So then you have to say, what am I left with and what decisions am I going to make about my own life based on that information? Right. And I would say that daddy issues, that's my best advice is that it is about her life. It's not about her father's choices. It's about her choices. Yeah. 
And it's it's true, it's important what Cheryl's saying, Daddy Issues, because the way your letter closes is very much directed at your father and speculation about your father. It's the echoes of those last lines of the Dick Laurie poem, if I forgive my father, then what's left? I'm still hanging on to, is there some formula? Can I find a way to get closer to him? What's happening inside him? What is, if I could open that great mysterious vault, even though I know it's empty, you know, if I could somehow do that, and that is actually... Um, what you're missing out on is the creation of your own life yeah. and your own story and the acceptance that that does not include a father who was able to love you and support you as you wished and deserved. And that's rotten luck. But, you know, you got to create your own good luck in, in making your story in the absence of that father that we all wish to have in our own ways, something that's true and beautiful and meaningful. I think she'll do it, but she does have to, you do have to shift the focus back to your story. Yeah. If you have dark luck, as the great Edna O'Brien said, your job is to find some glimmer in it. Mm-hmm. How do we forgive our fathers? Maybe in a dream? Do we forgive our fathers for leaving us too often or forever when we were little? Maybe for scaring us with unexpected rage or making us nervous because there never seemed to be any rage there at all? Do we forgive our fathers for marrying or not marrying our mothers? For divorcing or not divorcing our mothers? And shall we forgive them for their excesses of warmth or coldness? Shall we forgive them for pushing or leaning? For shutting doors? For speaking through walls? Or never speaking? Or never being silent? all dads, okay? Anybody who's listening, we have a lot of listeners who are dads, but they're like a silent majority. We want your questions and concerns. Don't, you don't have to be the strong silent type. Let us know what's on your mind and hearts. And stepdads too. And stepdads and adoptive dads and people who step in. All the dads. Everybody should write us letters. Send them to dearsugarradio at gmail.com. Dear Sugar Radio is produced by WBUR here in Boston. We're produced and edited by the inimitable Lisa Tobin, and we're recording at Cybersound in Boston. We want to offer our thanks to Perry Geyer and Justin Sheriff, and we want to wish everybody out there a big, fat, happy Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Do we forgive our fathers in our age or in theirs? Or in their deaths, saying it to them or not saying it? If we forgive our fathers, what is left?